0: Before I start on the um, next section of the, the reading, I um, just thought to uh, <clears throat> take a moment to clarify one or two things that um, people brought up in the last uh, uh, day or so following yesterday's reading, so particularly in relationship to um, not believing our thoughts, because, of course, thoughts, words, you know these books are full of words, <laughs> and... Um, when we say uh, 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 an expression use an expression like don't believe," that doesn't mean to so reject and dismiss or um, to to discount but it, uh, it rather it means don't take something to be uh, absolutely true um, from our, our own um, sort of habitual superficial um, judgment. So that this is an aspect that uh, of Dhamma practice, Ajahn Chah used to emphasize a great deal and would um, quote over and over again the, uh, an encounter or a, a situation where the Buddha was giving a Dhamma talk with the Venerable Sariputta next to him. And at the end of the, of the talk, then the Buddha turned to Sariputta and said, uh, have you ever heard me give this teaching before? And uh, Sariputta said, No, and uh, I never have. And the Buddha said, yeah, Well, that's, uh, that's because I've never given it before. It, it, it occurred to me as I was speaking. Um, so then the Buddha asked, So do you believe it to be true? And then Sariputta said, No, I don't. Uh, and so, uh, and it, then this, in that situation, sitting in front of a large group of people, this would seem to be an outrageous thing for the chief disciple to say to the guru, No, I don't believe what you're saying. Um, and then in Ajahn Chah's retelling of it, he he's actually merging a couple of different stories from the suttas and the commentaries in, in this scenario. But the way Ajahn Chah would tell it then would be that then the Buddha would say, so why is that uh, Sariputta? And he'd say, well, because I, I've only just heard you say it and I haven't had the chance to put it into practice and to, to find out for myself whether it's true. And then the Buddha says, good, Sariputta, good, this is excellent. You know, you are practicing... In the way that I would encourage, because even though you're my chief disciple and you have p- complete faith in the Tathagata, still you shouldn't just believe um, in an automatic way um, what is what is said, but rather you should take things and test them out and and find out uh, for yourself. So, uh, in terms of uh, of say relating to to belief or how we use words and language concepts, it's it's rather like in in the scientific realm you use a a working hypothesis okay let's uh, assume that this it looks likely that, that x is true or let's work on that basis and see see where we end up so the a working hypothesis or the term i was using yesterday a convenient fiction because even though thoughts are conditioned words are conditioned they're they're merely um so, <coughs> um I say representations uh, of uh, of qualities and uh, describing, uh, uh, say, uh, particular experiences that we have, like, say, you know, we, we call this glass in English or a gal in Thai, uh, a ver in French, I think. Is that right? Any French speakers? Yes. And <laughs> um, <clears throat> that we know when we use those sounds, oh, it's referring to that kind of a thing that you can see through and you can put water in and it doesn't, and it doesn't leak out. We call that, we call that a glass. And uh, one of the, um, the the most wonderful things um, kind of, uh, and the, which the Buddha referred to as the, the, the greatest kind of miracle is uh, the miracle of instruction. And he said there's two kinds of miracle. There's the miracle of psychic power, like flying through the air or um, seeing into past lives or reading people's thoughts. That's one kind of miracle. And the other kind of miracle is the miracle of instruction, which means you can hear words, and through hearing those words, you you can actually transform your heart. The heart can be liberated. So of these two kinds of miracle, the miracle of instruction is the is the superior. So that's an amazing thing. That is a word, a thought, an idea, it's just a, a conditioned form, it's just a sound, just a, a noise, but yet that um, the effect of that um, conditioned thing being received and reflected on can have a uh, a transformative effect that, that helps the mind to awaken to that which is uh, beyond conditioning, which is unconditioned, unborn. As it's uh, said in one uh, book, which I can't remember the title of, but it's, uh, the phrase goes, The magicians and storytellers open us up to wonder with their tricks. We are lured into the eternal reality through well-timed illusion. a nice little phrase. We are lured into the eternal reality by well-timed illusion. So this is what words, ideas, concepts, readings are. These are hopefully well-timed illusions that can lure us into the eternal reality. So then uh, let's carry on with the reading. This section is called The Expression Direct Path. The first section of the Satipatthana Sutta proper Introduces the four Satipatthanas as the quote, direct path unquote, to a realization. The passage reads Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of nibbana, namely, the four Satipatthanas. The qualification of being a direct path quote, unquote, occurs in the discourses almost exclusively. As an attribute of satipatana, thus it conveys a considerable—sorry, uh, thus it conveys <coughs> conveys a considerable degree of emphasis. Such emphasis is indeed warranted, since the practice of the direct path of Satipatthana is an indispensable requirement for liberation. As a set of verses in the Satipatthana sannuta points out, satipatana is the direct path for crossing the flood in past, present, and future times. Direct path, quote-unquote, is a translation of the Pali expression ekayano maggo, made up of the parts eka, one, ayana, going, and magga, path. The commentarial tradition has preserved five alternative explanations for understanding this particular expression. Great commentarial tradition. So five different alternatives. According to them, a path qualified as ekayano could be understood as a direct path in the sense of leading straight to the goal. Secondly, as a path to be travelled by oneself alone. Quote unquote. Thirdly, as a path taught by the One, the Buddha. Fourthly, as a path that is found only in Buddhism. Or lastly, as a path which leads to one goal, namely to Nibbāna. My rendering of ekayano as direct path follows the first of these explanations. A more commonly used translation of ekāyāno is the only path, corresponding to the fourth of the five explanations found in the commentaries. In order to assess the meaning of a particular Pāli term, its different occurrences in the discourses need to be taken into account. In the present case, in addition to occurring in several discourses in relation to satipatthana, ekāyāno also comes up once in, uh, in a different context. This is in a simile in the Mahasihanada Sutta, the Great Discourse on the Lion's Roar, which describes a man walking along a path leading to a pit, such that one can anticipate him falling into the pit. This path is qualified as ekayano. In this context, ekayano seems to express straightness of direction rather than exclusion. To say that this path leads directly to the pit would be more fitting than saying it is the only path leading to the pit. Of related interest is also the Tevija Sutta, which reports two Brahmin students arguing about whose teacher taught the only correct path to union with Brahma. Although, in this context, an exclusive expression like the only path, quote unquote, might be expected, the qualification ekayano is conspicuously absent. But they don't, that word ekayano is not used, even though they are talking about which is the only path. Uh, that term ekayano isn't, isn't used there. The same absence recurs in a verse from the Dhammapada which presents the Noble Eightfold Path as the only path. These two instances suggest that the discourses did not avail themselves of the qualification ekayano in order to convey exclusiveness. Thus ekayano, conveying a sense of directness rather than exclusiveness, (coughs) draws attention to Satipatthana as the aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path most directly responsible for uncovering a vision of things as they truly are. That is, Satipatthana is the direct path because it leads directly to the realization of Nibbāna. This way of understanding also fits well with the final passage of the Satipatthana Sutta. Having stated that Satipatthana practice can lead to the the two higher stages of realization within a maximum of seven years, the discourse closes with the declaration. Because of this, it has been said, this is the direct path. This passage highlights the directness of Satipatthana in the sense of its potential to lead to the highest stages of realization within a limited period of time. So the, uh, this is, um, uh, I think, a very well-phrased little uh, description and analysis. Um, the, uh, uh, the That phrase, ekayano no mago, uh, it's been tra- uh, translated in the Soma Terra's book. I think the whole book is called The Only Way to Deliverance, uh, as a translation of that. And then um, Venerable Nyanaponika Thera said, uh, This is the, translated as, This is the sole way, this is the, the only way to the purification of beings, the only way to, to liberation. And so it's a, it comes across as a kind of um, uh, sort of triumphalist tone, like it's a sort of counterpart to, well, the Christians quote, you know, the Gospel of John, I am the way and the truth and the life, but actually the Buddha says this is the only way, so there. (laughs) And uh, not that that's necessarily in the minds of these Nyanipalikatera or Sobatera, but it does come across in that way, uh, frequently uh, used as being this is the only way and all other ways are wrong. So there's a kind of exclusivity or a... um, a triumphalist tone that, um, we, you know, we've got the one true path, uh, which of course is an attitude that will obstruct any realization of Nibbana. <laughs> that, we, uh, that, that any kind of um, grasping or claiming uh, some sort of superiority uh, is uh, that sort of uh, attitude, that kind of grasping that, uh, say, uh, um, conceit, is one of the main obstructions to any kind of real liberation. So uh, even though the, the, they could make a case for that, um, that, uh, that oneness or that saying it's the, uh, the only way, I think uh, Venerable Anale's, um analysis is, is very accurate here. It's also the same as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi and um, what is there in the Majjhima Nikaya in Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu uh translation where they, um, they render it a path that goes in one direction only. Is the the uh, the, um, uh, the translation that Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, specifies? So that, that, that so Viku Bodhi and Bhikkhu Analayo are really in agreement on this. So I feel it's it's a um, <clears throat> it's also good to 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 see how that um, you know when any kind of religious teaching is given, there can be that uh, uh, even though. These teachings are given to to liberate the heart. They can they can be um, grasped in in unskillful <coughs> ways. So it just becomes my you know my team. We're you know we're the reds or we're the blues or we're the you know the uh, that's who uh, that's who my team is and we're the best. Which is a very is a, a very human kind of uh, feeling a very human sort of attitude. But it's not one that's that's uh, liberating or, or or noble in any way. And so that. Uh, uh it's it's also helpful to know that it's not backed up by the this uh say uh, an accurate analysis of the of these uh, of the scripture as I would say so there was a little passage from this one I thought I'd read. So this is just a short passage from this more recent book. He says, Applying this sense to the present context, I understand the satipatthana to be the direct path for purifying the mind and thus proceeding towards liberation. Here, mindfulness directly feeds into the development of insight as it directly faces one's present moment experience uncovering its various features. Directly facing one's own condition right now is what informs progress along the path, being the appropriate attitude that one should maintain during formal practice and in everyday life. Summing up, in my view, a central aspect of Satipatthana meditation is facing things directly with awareness. So, any questions on, on uh, that uh, Ekayana mago before we carry on? Very good. Okay. So the next uh, section deals with the term Satipatthana. The term Satipatthana can be explained as a compound of Sati, mindfulness or awareness, and Upatthana, with the U u of the latter term being dropped by vowel elision, so that when you put two Pali words together, then uh, often if one of them begins with a vowel, the, the vowel gets dropped off. So Sati and Upatthana. The Pali term upatana literally means placing near, and in the present context refers to a particular way of being present and attending to something with mindfulness. In the discourses the corresponding verb upatahati often denotes various nuances of being present or else attending. Understood in this way, satipatana means that sati stands by, in the sense of being present. Sati is ready at hand in the sense of attending to the current situation. Satipatthana can then be translated as presence of mindfulness, or attending with mindfulness. The commentaries, however, derive Satipatthana from the word foundation, or cause, patana. This seems unlikely since, in the discourses contained in the Pali canon, the corresponding verb, patthati, never occurs together with sati. Moreover, the noun patana is not found at all in the early discourses, but comes into use only in the historically later Abhidhamma and the commentaries. In contrast, the discourses frequently re- relate sati to the verb up- upatahati, indicating that presence, upatana is the etymologically correct derivation. In fact, the equivalent Sanskrit term is smirti-upasthana, which shows that upasthana, uh, upasthana, or its Pali equivalent upatthana, is the correct choice for the compound. The problem with the commentarial explanation is that, instead of understanding satipatthana as a particular attitude of being aware, satipatthana becomes a quote, foundation unquote of mindfulness, the cause for the establishment of sati. This moves the emphasis from the activity to the object. So rather than um, the, the activity as in standing close by or attending, the uh, The attention goes to the object like that whether it's a feeling or a thought or the body um, and it's taken that those uh and the, the terminology like four foundations of mindfulness is is kind of automatic um, uh, and very common in buddhist circles the you know the, the four foundations of mindfulness um so uh, I think the point that venerable Analio is making here is is uh, very significant in that the uh, it's it's not uh, so much a foundation the, these four aspects are not the foundations of mindfulness but more like that upat, uh, that upatana is the characteristic of attending being close by yeah. also it's interesting that the um the word upasika for a female lay disciple or upasaka for the male means one who sits close by so it's a, it's, it's um, not that they're closely related but it's that uh, the, well, that sense of being close, uh, uh, being close to something. So, this moves emphasis from the activity to the object. Yet these four Satipatthanas are not the only possible cause or foundation for mindfulness, since the, in the Saliyatana Vibhanga Sutta, on the Six Senses, the Buddha spoke of three other Satipatthanas, none of which corresponds to the four Satipatthanas usually mentioned. The three Satipatthanas described by the Buddha on this occasion—that's in that uh, Saliyatana Vibhanga Sutta—were his maintenance of mindfulness and equanimity as a teacher in regard to three different situations: one, where none of the pupils paid attention; some paid uh, two, some paid attention, and some did not; and three, all paid attention. So, uh, the fact that the Buddha nevertheless defined these three as satipattanas showed that to speak of satipattana is less a question of the nature of the object, like feelings or thoughts or the body, whatever, that is chosen than of attending to whatever situation with a balanced attitude and with mindfulness being present. So uh, that means also just a, a, a term like a presence of mind is a very good um, rendering of Satipatthana as well. But, um, so uh, again, he's, um, uh, Bhikkhu Analyos of Close understanding and way of analysing the the, um, the texts and the pali words gives a, a, a helpful say, perspective on uh, on that particular terminology. And probably not too many of us is losing sleep over over these kind of details. It might sound a little bit technical, but it is. Um, uh, I feel it's a, a helpful emphasis to make that when we're talking about satipatthana, we can focus on the the thing that we are attending to, but uh, what he's saying here is that well, the the essence of it is not so much the thing that's being attended to, but how the attention is being formed. That's that's the um, um, the the kind of uh, the the essence of it or the, the the key element that's that's present there. Is that clear enough? Don't don't be shy because these readings are for you; they're not for me. So <laughs> I can. Uh, Fill the air with noise easily, but uh, the, these are these are readings for for you. So.
1: That, that that point about the, the object versus the attention itself it seems quite an important one because I remember when I, when I started meditation, and I was hearing about the set of tans, It seemed as though it was being presented as you get um, more refined mindfulness with a more refined object in some ways, so you know, like the mind as an object was more refined than the body as an object, and you
0: would get a different, I don't know, <laughs> kind of meditation or mm-hmm. something. Um, so it's, it seems like a very important comment. Yeah, it, and in a way it resonates with what I was saying yesterday about Ajahn Chah's relationship to different meditation practice, different types of meditation practice, and that it's not so much the details of the method, you know, do you follow your breath from the nose tip to the chest to the, to the belly? Or do you follow the movement of the breath sort of through the energy channels in, in, your, in your body? Or do you just watch the you know the breath through the rising and falling of the abdomen? Or, or do you not, not follow the breath at all? But rather, how are you bringing attention to that? What is the attitude that you're working with? How are you picking up the object, having picked up the object, how are you maintaining that attention, having maintained the attention, what are you, what are you doing with it, and, and how do you relate to the results where, of things going well, or things going badly? What, what, what's the, the, the whole uh, sort of, uh, method of, of handling it? And what does the, the, the mind um, make of um, that, uh, that whole process? Because it's it's very very common that people take up a a meditation technique and then they get very they get very uh, sort of focused on the tech on the mechanics of the technique and they be- they get really good or get very familiar with doing that method and uh, but this uh, this aspect of attitude um, and the uh, uh, the the way that the, the object is being held or, or the, the way the mind is being guided is. Is almost sort of disregarded altogether because it's it's sort of how much did my mind focus on that object, or or what stage of of insight have I reached, and and that the um, that uh, <laughs> that other dimension is is sort of is lost altogether, and uh, and yet it can be uh, it can be the most important thing. It's not like in insofar as uh, you know where you want to get to when driving a car, but he. Uh, it, uh, the main thing is how you drive and how you relate to the rest of the traffic on the road <laughs> in order to get there there safely, because if you don't pay attention to the rest of, of the people on the road with you, and what the weather's like, and whether it's rainy, or whether the sun's in your eyes, or what the speed limit is, or what the sounds are that your engine is making, then you're not going to get there, <laughs> or you're going to have a lot of obstructions and difficulties on the way, and so that, um, the, you know, the process of of attending, it's not just the you know, the object that you're aiming at that is the thing that matters, but um, the the whole way that you're working with it, and and the um, I say a tuning of the mind to uh, to that that whole process is uh, the significant thing. So um, it reminds me of my early uh,
1: meditation attempts when I try to stay with the. Object, you know, and then then the mind, the sati is not awake any longer. The sati gets hurted. It's, it's not even you know, so. There's no, no tuning, in that sense. And only when I understood that, actually, you know, good meditation, bad meditation, just stay with what is happening yeah. and not have a fixed idea of how it should be. And then it started to become more. Uh, relaxed and, and alive mm-hmm. and, and then it was the, the result of how long I stay with it is not really the point but whether I, yeah. I'm aware of what is happening and, and stay with it without getting harsh about
0: it and you also you begin to appreciate all of the the qualities that you get you uh, that you develop along the way. And I'm, I'm, uh, if any of you who listen to Dhamma Talks of Lumpur Sumedas have read his books, you'll, there's a, a, uh, an incident he, he speaks about a lot. It really had a powerful effect on him where someone who'd been one of the long-standing members of the Buddhist group in England that, uh, that um, uh, uh, he knew very well and was a very, very committed practitioner and uh, he just casually mentioned, oh, I've been doing Anapanasati for 20 years, I've never got anything out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been following my breath for twenty years. I never got anything from it. And and Lumpur Sameda being like what? <laughs> this couldn't you know, he'd been faithfully plugging away at the method and and so sort of trying to um you know force his, his mind to concentrate and you know obviously a certain amount of faith and persistence, <laughs> commitment. But um everything was focused on the results of this should be this kind of absorption, or th- there should be this result, and I haven't got there yet. So, therefore, this 20 years of anapanasati has been a waste of time. He wasn't. He wasn't resentful. It was just, I've been trying for 20 years, and I haven't got. Any, and the way he interpreted it was, I haven't got anything from it. <laughs> so it made Vipassana <laughs> talk even more about <laughs> about the attitude, also not not going to war with your with your mind not making the working with the mind a battle yes
1: sorry Arjun it's It's interesting I find when I hear people say I haven't gotten anything out of my meditation because I find it to be kind of the opposite it's more about what I feel I drop I don't feel like I wouldn't want to say I get anything because I don't feel I get anything it's more what I drop
0: that's my thing. Yes, yeah. That's a wiser approach. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a
1: Western thing.
0: Westerners I think are a bit excited on you know, getting things. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's it's a well, it's a sort of classic uh, spiritual materialism mm. dynamic where particularly if you pay lots of money to go on meditation courses, then you you <laughs> you you you've you paid your money, now you want to get your product, you know, you, <laughs> that you you should be getting your return. And um, it's uh, the whole a- aspect of, uh, of, you know, all, as you say, I, I haven't got anything from meditation. Oh, good, good. <laughs> because the the point of the practice is not to get anything, but that it, it's a it's a sort of classical spiritual materialist attitude, and but it's also that um, if we we think, oh, I'm supposed to subdue my thoughts concentrate the mind absorb into tajana and then uh, as long as my 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 mind is thinking then I've I've failed or I can't concentrate on the breath for more than a couple of seconds therefore I'm a fa- yeah you know, I'm a failure at anapanasati. that uh, that the way of framing it, that kind of thing in, in our in our thoughts then it's, it's a it's, it's showing a um, that there's a kind of um, fight you, the, the the mind is trying to fight against the the patterns of thinking and and uh, the, the uh, mental impressions that that come up, but also that the the uh, the experience is being judged completely in terms of well does my uh, my meditation match what the teacher is saying or what it says in the book and if it doesn't then I'm a failure, and not seeing that uh, the um, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of wisdom that can be learned even when the mind is still racing around all over the place or is very uh, uh, disturbed or filled with different emotions. That If the mind reflects on that in a skillful way, it can be productive of a lot of wisdom. But also the whole way that effort can be applied without it being uh, a fight. So that's also one of the reasons why Lumpur Samadho would speak so much about um, working with the mind with uh, an attitude of loving-kindness. Because it's so prevalent that we just <laughs> we uh, we wade in and start trying to 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 force our mind to be in a particular way. So I often like uh, uh, liken it to teaching a child how to to say uh, write um, the letters of the alphabet, or you know training a child to to um, tie their shoelaces or something like that. If children still have shoelaces nowadays. They probably. So <laughs> it's <laughs> probably a thing of the past uh. <clears throat> but uh, say so, you know, when you're when you're teaching a child how to to write a letter you know, the, you know a letter of the you know, ABC that yeah, there's a direction is being given but it's a collaboration you're you're working with the child to to show them what the shape is okay there's one leg down here one leg down there and then a bar across the middle and that's an a a is for apple a. and that uh, that yeah, that effort, is, is, is there's a definite direction, you're shaping the letter in a particular way, that's the shape of the, the letter, but it's, uh, there is effort being made and direction being given, but it's a collaboration with the child, it's not uh, you know, forcing the child to, or, uh, to, to uh, behave in the way that we, we wish, it's not like a fight between the, the teacher and the child or the parent and the child. If it is, then it always ends, it's always going to end in tears. <laughs> it's always going to be painful and stressful and, and, uh, and miserable. But if there's a collaboration, so there's direction is being given, and it's not just letting the mind drift all over the place, there's a definite um, I say, aim and effort being applied, but it's a, it's a working with the mind, it's a working with the body, and with the conditions as they are, rather than than fighting against them or trying to force them to be a particular way, or if they're not that particular way, then it's wrong and bad. Like if a child is sort of making their, their first effort to draw an A, it's like that's totally awful. That's awful. That's not a straight line. Call that an A? Well, <laughs> <I'm only> maybe two. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. You you you're. you're a, uh, and but we can be like that with our own minds, and so that um, in terms of of these qualities of, of mindfulness, the, the uh, he goes on to talk a little bit about these um, the way of working with the mind, atapi uh, sampajano satima, diligent um, uh, with uh, <coughs> uh, sampajano with, with um, wise re- reflection with with a, you know, full awareness. Uh, satima with mindfulness that there's um, that's is pointing to that kind of engagement with the mind uh, engagement with with the 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 present moment that sense of of, of caring attention but it's not a <clears throat> it's not just um, say trying to force a particular result so that when we are um, looking at the way that we work then we see that if there's there's an attitude of, of loving-kindness, and the very means with which we're working to train the mind, that you're, you're right there, you're creating the causes of peacefulness. It's a, that, that collaborative attitude is is a cause for, for harmony, for peacefulness, whereas a contentious attitude is a cause for more stress and confusion and suffering.
2: I just wanted to mention what you're saying. I find it very useful because even in Buddhism, it seems like there are some teachers, some schools that are. Uh, where there's some. Sometimes one finds this emphasis on one has to. You know, achieve or the more one, the more hours one meditates during the day, the better. Or if one doesn't attain a certain state of absorption, then there's no point in trying to do observe phenomena and. I find that that can lead to a lot of frustration. So hearing that um, it's okay to ease back a little bit, and just
0: observe the struggles is also um, useful and kind of very beneficial. Yeah, it's a, it's also a very strong theme of Ajahn Chah's teaching. That the, any kind of way of sort of rank, ranking yourself against other people, uh, or saying oh you know so and so you know. The, that monk can, can sit for, for 6 hours you know someone make a comment like and i say, oh i've seen chickens sit for longer than 6 hours <laughs> yeah that chicken over there you know she can sit she can sit on her eggs for like 2 days without moving you know and <laughs> that you think oh yeah actually sitting still is not an, is not a virtue in and of itself it's like breathing it's like like you can put you can switch on a monitor and, and keep track of the breath you know, draw a graph. You know, <laughs> for days and days, you know, the machine's got perfect anapanasati. <laughs> the machine is recording every nuance of the breath. You know, and it's printed out, it gives you a printout. But the the machine is not becoming liberated. Yeah. And so that um, uh, that also the 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 part of the Western mindset is also very mu- built much. Built around wanting to know where we're at, what stage we've reached, and and wanting to sort of to, to get ahead and to to attain something, and so uh, again, lompo cha would, uh, would steer away from that language altogether. Like you know, not not to not practicing to get something or to become something or to reach some particular stage. It's not that there are no stages. It's not it's not saying no. That, but rather not emphasizing that or making that into a, a, um, a, a big f- uh, focus for people's attention. So that then you carry on, it's like you're doing the work necessary to make the journey without fussing about how far along you've, you are. But you just pay attention to the road, look out for the traffic, make sure you've got petrol in the tank and, <laughs> and you'll get where you need to go. You don't need to be focusing on the, on the journey all the time or you know, how far along you've got, how many more miles you've got left to go. It's a
1: little bit different question, but in Mahayana tradition we have a meditation. We, have, uh, we observe uh, with Kwan, but tarawada is a little bit different. When you go into the Jhana, you uh, we we can use the Nimitta as you write. You have to use the Nimitta.
0: You don't have to. Some people don't see nimittas at all. Just if we can
1: keep our uh, breathing. Yes, In yeah. The way.
0: yeah. Yeah. Yes, Eva. Uh, at the beginning of the sutta,
3: well, the, the thing you just mentioned that you, not what you watch, it's how you watch, fully ardent, uh, fully aware, ardent,
2: Mindful. Mindful. <laughs> um,
3: and also it says having put away desire and discontent.
0: Vinaya abhija dhammanasa. Uh, having put aside um, was it desire and discontent in, rela- in regard to the world. Also, Morris Walsh translates that as having uh, put away hankering and fretting. Maybe I, there's a really good, in English, there's a really useful, good words for that. gives that sort of, there's an emotional tone to that, that is, is a, gives you a good picture, a feeling for what that's talking about.
3: And that to me seems to be quite important because it seems like, uh, as if that implies having put away, well, at least two or five hindrances, which are distortions of reality, for seeing things clearly, but that's the work in itself. Mm-hmm. But that's also where you have to begin, mm-hmm. to be able to see things clearly. So how, where to start?
0: <laughs> well, you, you start with the idea. So that if you, you sit down to meditate, or you're standing there at the end of your your walking path, and then you um, you, you, know, you can bring those qualities to mind. And so that, that in terms of attitude, To be awake, paying attention, you know, mindful of where you're standing, what the what the mood is, what the body feels like, and then as this is putting aside hankering and fretting for the world, desire and discontent. Now, am I um, am I wanting something? Am I uh, wanting to get rid of something? Just asking those kind of questions, and and then to uh, just by raising those questions or, or bringing up that idea, then that helps to steer it in that direction. So that at least you've got a, a, an eye on that, and then we're having just raised the the, the idea or being uh, so the um, bringing it to attention. Okay, I need to be uh, be alert to if the mind is moving towards wanting to get something or wanting to get rid of something. Okay, that's that, that's a direction to to not follow. So then. then then you get a feeling um, for how that works. So you start off with the idea and then that uh, helps to bring the attention more completely to that experience so that you know, okay, this is hankering and and, uh, agitation. Okay, this is what it's like when you let go of that. And so that it's, you, you plant the suggestion, you raise the idea, and then that helps to lead the mind towards the actual letting go of those qualities.
3: What if they are not present in such coarse form because, you know, as I understand it they are sort of present all the time because they are the fuel for Avija but, you know, I might not be aware of it because I don't want to see them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, if (coughs) if you're not aware of them then to be able to say, well, okay, well the moment there doesn't seem to be any hankering or fretting okay <laughs> let's let's just carry on and see if they they pop up or see if there's if they uh, if they become visible in some way so that you know that in a sense that um the, those other qualities atapi you know being intelligent diligent uh some pagano, uh, fully aware uh, mindful is yeah, you know, it's a sense of having your eye, you know, having your eyes open, and you, there, a lot of the time in in Dhamma practice there can be that sense of, I'm sure I'm missing something. I know I'm hanging under something, but I don't know I don't have a clue what it is. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, well let's just carry on, and then maybe it will become apparent. I think I'm afraid of something. I'm, I'm worried about something. You know what am I worried about? Or yeah, I've, I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get something what what's what's trying to be got here and and it can be unclear uh, and but there's not a it's not useful to just create more agitation or doubt but just that sense of uh, I think the mind is stuck on something, but let's just keep working and then maybe it'll become apparent what the what the mind is longing for or is worried about or is uh, being annoyed by. And oftentimes it's it's when you you stop looking, you sort of look away, and you go, oh, <laughs> that's what it is. You know that you, when you stop trying, sometimes it becomes uh, it becomes apparent that oh, that there's some some attitude, some kind of fear, anxiety you know, that, that you you didn't realise was there. Like, I want to be I want to be accepted. That's, oh I'm afraid of not being, uh, not being liked. Oh look at that. <laughs> and then might be something that's been sort of hovering around uh, for, uh, for months and months and you hadn't already seen it and suddenly okay, that's what that is. And that uh, <clears throat> or it can be just um, like uh, like lump he, he um, for years and years in his meditation, he had this this kind of fearfulness and, uh, and, he, and that even when he was sort of sitting alone in his kuti, he had this the, this kind of strange sort of tension that was in the back of his mind and then occasionally he'd have these dreams where he's going into the like, into the exam hall at his university at uc berkeley and he come into the exam and he think oh I haven't revised this subject. Oh, oh, what, oh dear. And then he'd wake up. And then and then finally, after about five or six years, he put two and two together, and he realized, oh, I'm treating my meditation like an exam. Oh, I'm thinking this is a test, and I haven't done the revision for my test. And suddenly, click, you know, he, he, just, he hadn't realized that, that for years and years he'd been holding on to... The meditation is something that, like, and Ajahn Chah was examining him. You know, he was like the, the teacher. And he had to, and there was this conditioning of having been a student for so long, that was relating to the the practice as something that he had like an exam he had to pass, and he didn't want to get a bad mark. Oh, <laughs> so sometimes those kind of, uh, the, these kind of attachments can they can be around for years and years, and it's not clear what they are, but. That's why patience is one of the most wonderful qualities.
2: <laughs> Pardon me, um, just a small question. A Zen teacher I know, she um, was, went to an appointment to teach mindfulness, um, a quite an important situation. And when she went for the interview, she thought of all the usual questions she might be asked about technique, etc., you know but she was uh, quite dumbfounded by the, the question that was posed to the first question. And the, the first question was, when you're teaching mindfulness, how would you stop one of your students becoming the next Andreas Brebeck? How
0: would you stop one of your students what?
2: Becoming the next Andreas Brebeck. You know the assassin mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. killed the children, and he said that he used Zen and mindfulness in his practice, When in the court they said, Um, how did you plan this? And he said, I played computer games, but I used mindfulness. I had a complete attention of what I was doing. And the prosecutor said, how could you kill all those people looking in the face? And he said, there's no self. And he meant it, you know. That was his interpretation. And, you know, I wonder sometimes when we're looking at this practice um, with the mindfulness, the how can we integrate that with our humanity more, and not just be sort of like a psychoanalysis thing? You know, how can we help you do that to be a benefit in life, so that we don't make those mistakes when people are listening to it?
0: Well, more uh, reflective wisdom and spiritual friends is the the uh, the short answer.
2: The same teacher said, "The heart bring." You shouldn't teach mindfulness without bringing compassion and heart factors into the teaching. That's what the Zen teacher felt. It was very, very important, not just to look at it as an analytical process, but as a process of development to define the qualities of humanity.
0: Yes. (laughs) That's why working with the uh, the attitude of loving kindness you know, if that's you know, you, um, if that's genuine then it doesn't just stop with loving kindness towards your own body and mind then it there's a, a natural benevolence towards you know, other beings as well so it's uh, it's included within that Okay, go on a little bit. Let's see. So this is uh, going into the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta. So this chapter and the next two are devoted to an examination of the definition part of Satipatthana Sutta. This definition, which occurs also in other discourses as the standard way of defining right mindfulness, samasati, describes essential aspects of satipatthana practice and therefore forms a key to understanding how the meditation techniques listed in the Satipatthana Sutta are to be undertaken. The passage in question reads, Here, monks, in regard to the body, a monk abides contemplating the body diligent, clearly knowing and mindful free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, he abides contemplating feelings – diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind – diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dumbness, he abides contemplating dumbness – diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Now in this chapter I will first take a look at the expression contemplating, anupasi, and consider why the objects of this contemplation are mentioned twice, for example in regard to the body, uh, one is to contemplate the body. I will then explore the significance of the first two qualities mentioned in the definition, diligent adhapi, and clearly knowing sampajana. The remaining qualities, mindfulness and the absence of desires and discontent, will be uh, subjects of chapters 3 and 4. So just uh, read a little bit about contemplation. Uh, The definition of right mindfulness is concerned with contemplating. The corresponding Pali verb, anupasati, can be derived from the verb to see, pasati, and the emphatic prefix anu. So that anupasati means to repeatedly look at, that is, to contemplate or to closely observe. The discourses often speak of contemplation in order to describe a particular way of meditation, an examination of the observed object from a particular viewpoint. In the case of the body, for example, such observation can involve contemplating the body as impermanent, anicca nupasi, vayanupasi, and therefore as something which doesn't yield lasting satisfaction, no pasī. Or as unattractive, asupanupasi, and as not self, anatanupasi, and therefore as something to be let, to be let go of, nupāsi. These various forms of contemplation, contemplation, emphasize how the object is to be perceived. That is, as used in the discourses, contemplation implies that particular features of the object are to be given prominence, such as its impermanence or its selfless nature. In the present context, however, the feature to be contemplated appears to be the same as the object of contemplation. Literally translated, one contemplates body in body or feelings in feelings, etc. This slightly peculiar expression requires further consideration. Taking the first Satipatthana, and people have been wondering about that expression for the last two and a half thousand years. (laughs) What does it mean, the body in the body? the Feelings in feelings. Taking the first Satipatthana as an example, the instructions are, In regard to the body, abide contemplating the body. Here the first instance of body can be understood in the light of the Satipatthana refrain. The refrain explains that to contemplate the body applies to internal and external bodies. According to the commentaries, internal and external here represent one's own and another person's body. On this understanding, the first instance of body, in the locative case, could be translated as, where one's own or another's body is concerned, or in regard to one's own or another's body, delineating the compass of this Satipatthana. For the second instance of body, the Satipatthana Sutta offers detailed specifications. To contemplate body can be undertaken by contemplating the breath, or the postures of the body, or activities of the body, or the anatomical constitution of the body, or the four elementary qualities of the body or the decomposition of the body after death. Thus the second occurrence of body stands for a particular aspect from the general area of contemplation, a sub-body in the overall body, to, uh, so to speak. And there's an, also an expression you get in some suttas where it says, um, this is one body amongst bodies, that is to say. The refrain also c- contains additional information about the significance of contemplation in the present context. The same term is used with, spe- with specification that the arising and the passing away of phenomena is the focus of contemplation. That is, to speak of contemplation in the present context refers to directing awareness to the body and in particular to a specific feature of it, namely its impermanent nature. In drawing from other parts of the Satipatthana Sutta, one can thus expand the somewhat puzzling instruction, in the body abide contemplating the body, to read, In regard to your own body, or the bodies of others, direct awareness to its, or their, impermanent nature evident in different aspects of the body, such as the process of breathing, postures or activities, or its anatomical constitution, or its elementary qualities, or its decay at death. According to the commentaries, the repetition of the object to contemplation also indicates emphasis, implying that the object of contemplation should be considered simply as perceived by the senses, and in particular without taking it to be I or mine. In this way, the repetition, body in body, for example, underlines the importance of direct experience as opposed to mere intellectual reflection. One should let the body speak for itself, so to say, disclosing its true nature to the scrutiny of the meditator. So I feel that's a very um, uh, astute and uh, I would suspect very accurate uh, interpretation. So thank you very much, Venerable Anario. <laughs> it's probably not the final word on it. But um, as I said, this has been, ever since the commentaries were first written a couple of thousand years ago, that people have been debating oh, the body in the body, or the feelings and feelings, what does this mean? <laughs> and I feel that this is a... a um, uh, as good a an interpretation and uh, and one that really works and makes makes a, a lot of sense um when you're reading the the the, the Sutta. and so i would uh heartily support his interpretation there it's also contemplation the, the english word it comes from the the latin um con means um with or um to uh together uh, and t- uh, t- uh, the word templum is a, a sacred area, so a templum would be marked out by astrologers or um, by um, religious people. they would like a, an area of ground or an area of the sky, and then within that templum, within that sacred space, they would observe what kind of animals or birds showed up, or what the stars were doing and the planets and so forth. So it's a uh, the templum is a is a defined area for consideration and the watching uh, and reading the signs that appear within that templum so our english word temple like the amravati temple has uh, again many of you will have heard lumpusomado uh, expounding on this that's uh, what what a temple is it's a it's a defined space for um, uh, uh, for uh, say examining what arises <laughs> and to to look at the patterns of that which appears Within the templum and the the purpose of that uh, interpretation or that uh, exploring of signs and patterns and, and uh, images is for the uh, the development of, of understanding and there and the spiritual enrichment or liberation that comes from that so uh, contemplation is using the mind as a templum it 's like the 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 uh, the the quality of having a defined area of examination and then looking and seeing what arises within that templum within that sacred space so that you're defining the templum of uh, the the body or uh, the uh, or uh, uh, of impermanence or of dukkha or uh, uh, not self or of relinquishment all these different areas is is uh, anupasati the uh, those contemplations, it's like you define, let, let's look at this in terms of anicca let's look at this in terms of dukkha, let's uh, define this uh, area of experience in this particular way. So you have um, various different kinds of, of contemplations of that kind, but that's, I feel, a helpful way of understanding what uh, what contemplation means, and that it's not just uh, thinking about, but that quality of, uh, of care, uh, careful attention and then allowing your own natural intelligence to recognize patterns or to to be open to the patterns of of experience that uh, are appearing and to uh, to discern to use that quality of discernment and to uh, say uh, to read uh, what uh, what might come forth from the the patterns that are being watched so that whatever is being uh, observed whether it's feelings or, or the body or these different aspects um, then the the understanding that arises is the aha uh-huh, that's uh, that's how that works oh that's impermanent too oh yeah so how could that be real, the real me that that understanding that arises is the in a sense the the, the purpose of that contemplation is that is not just a say uh a uh, kind of solving of a puzzle or the, uh, uh, having a, um, more information but rather the change of heart that comes from that, uh, that quality of, of understanding or um, you know, recognizing particular patterns or forms or, or meaning. So I'll leave that there for, the, for now. Any other particular questions about contemplation? Indeed.
2: Is it pointing to non there? Mm-hmm. When he said, "The eye in the eye of the feeling within the feeling." Is he pointing towards a non-judgmental state of mind, where we don't see ourselves as separate
0: from that? Um, well, that's that's part of it. Um, as he said, uh, the the final statement he make, uh, the final statement that he made, one should let the the body speak for itself, so to say, disclosing its true nature. Um, it's, uh it's different ways you can read it it's underlining the importance it's um looking at sort of the body as a general domain and then the the, the sort of bodies the, the uh the other bodies within that that particular body um so it, it's uh it can be interpreted in that way but it has a a broad range of meaning as far as i as far as i read it